Well, good evening. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Always uh, good to get away in fellowship with other like-minded folks and uh, pastors and uh, get away from the home church. Uh, don't tell them I said that that way, but uh, I want to make sure I'm on here. Okay. And uh, rejoice in God's work here. I uh, realized as I was driving here the devastation of what you went through, at least those who lived in the flooded areas. And our hearts go out to you. We kind of escaped that up in the Clarkston area. Uh, and actually, we live in Ortonville, even north of there. But uh, didn't realize it had rained that hard. And then discovered uh, in the news that four to six inches of rain, depending on the location. And uh, my mother-in-law down in Melvindale had some water in her basement. And my wife was down there helping her. And uh, actually, still down there because she has a sick sister, too. But... Uh, God is good through every situation. He has a plan and purpose for our lives, and uh, all things work together for good, even in situations like this. A pastor once had a very unusual opportunity as he was flying one day, and he was just reading his Bible when uh, the neighbor next to him started asking him questions. Asked him if he was a Bible believer or asked him various questions that led to a full gospel presentation. So it's not a bad idea to read your Bible when you're flying or traveling. Uh, never know what kind of opportunities the Lord will give you. Well, as a result of that, he was able to lead the man to the Lord. In fact, he lived in the same general area where he was pastoring. And later on, he was baptized in his church. And what rejoicing when there's a new believer that comes to Christ. But tragically, after time passed, he lost interest, completely dropped out of the church, and showed that really what was a profession of faith was just that. It was lip service and was not really in the heart, uh, was not a genuine conversion. And tragically, that seems to be happening more and more, at least in my life's experience, people that say they're saved or they make a profession of faith but there's no what we would call stick to if that is even a word, uh, where people lose interest and their heart is not really in that. Uh, it's sometimes easy to get people to say, I believe in Christ, had knowledge, but do they really want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Has there been a true conversion? I believe true conversion must include a turning away from the past, and a real heart, a genuine heart, to follow Christ, to follow the Lord. Um, we sang a song earlier, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. And uh, we'll focus on that subject here in a moment when we turn to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. The conversion really is an act by which man, in obedience to God's divine summons, determines to change the course of their life. There is a conversion, a turning away from the past, and a turning to Jesus Christ. Does that mean a person is perfect? No. I'm a perfect example of that. I'm far from perfect. Ask my family. Uh, ask my church family. Uh, but there ought to be that desire, a heart, to follow Christ. A repentant spirit when we realize that we've fallen back into sinful ways and allowed the flesh to overwhelm us at times. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. 
says, And he said, Truly I say unto you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be converted to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, or after Pentecost, Pentecost was in chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, said, Therefore, repent and return. The King James Version says, Repent and be converted. So return and conversion are the same idea there. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Conversion really is a a renunciation of the idols of our life. And we have a lot of our own idols. American idols, not talking about the TV program, but uh, idols that are own, uh, that are Western gods, so to speak. We have to make a choice whether we're going to follow Jesus. And think of the chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. This, This evening, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we'll look at what I believe is probably a fairly familiar uh, narrative here in the life of Christ and opportunity for Christ to present the gospel, uh, particularly when he was asked by a man that is described as the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This account is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it is uh, found on several passages. But we notice here this very interesting and really fascinating setting here in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Scripture says, And he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we would ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word. We believe in the power of the word, the sufficiency of the word. 
to guide and instruct us. Within Scripture we have the truth, the hope of eternal life, the gospel, the precious gospel, as well as commands and a guideline for every scenario in life. Lord, may we be people of the book, love it, and hold it dear to our lives. Lord, we ask for your blessing on this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned earlier, this is often called the narrative of the rich young ruler. Matthew, in his account, states that he was young. Luke, in his account, says he was a ruler. And so we get, as we combine these accounts, the rich young ruler. Perhaps he was a ruler in the local synagogue, had some kind of authority there. Uh, His wealth probably gave him a situation of prominence within the city there. Uh, Wealthy people were looked up to. They were blessed by God. Uh, If anybody was going to heaven in those days, certainly the wealthy were. Uh, Kind of a health-wealth philosophy, perhaps, that they had at that time. But as we look at this passage, there's three key thoughts that we'd like to share in trying to understand this text and understand some application from the text. The first point that we'd like to share in verses 17 and 18 is the world's investigation about conversion can be very sincere. Say that again, the world's investigation, their desire to learn about the gospel can be very sincere. They're investigating. They, they may ask questions. The man on the airplane was inquisitive and asked questions. He found out he was sitting next to a preacher. So he had a captive audience. Or depending on which way you want to look at it, the preacher probably thought, I have a captive audience there with this guy for a while also. We see here at the beginning, in verse 17, this, this young ruler runs up to Jesus. Uh, I read that that was not kosher, uh, no pun intended, in, in those days to, for a wealthy person to be seen running. Uh, they didn't do that. That was not the norm. Uh, not to say they didn't exercise, but to be in a hurry in, in that type of situation. And what does he do? He falls on his knees with a degree of profound respect for Jesus Christ. What he knew of Christ were... He certainly knew he was a great teacher, as we'll see how he addresses Christ. Uh, Whether he truly believed that he was God, uh, it may be somewhat doubtful, but he had respect. And certainly there were others that had respect and wanted to meet with Jesus Christ. We have Zacchaeus, we have Nicodemus, and others. And he addresses Jesus as good teacher. It was a kind of a formal address, as you might address somebody who was knowledgeable, who had been known to be a speaker in the region, and probably he heard about some of Christ's teaching ministry. Maybe he actually heard him by his own ears or heard of him in some of his sayings, some of his unusual teachings, and perhaps also heard or saw as an eyewitness of some of his miracles. And certainly those should have produced the knowledge that not only is this individual unique, he is truly the Son of God, he is the Messiah, He proved his deity while he was on earth uh, in many different ways. But he asked a question. He asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. 
That's a question more people ought to be asking. That's life's most important question. Is there anything more important than knowing about our eternal destiny? A lot of important decisions in life. Marriage, school, employment, housing, major purchases. But nothing comes even close to understanding the gospel and making that decision to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he asked this vital question, and he perhaps was in turmoil. He had a lot of wealth. He had prominence, prestige. He was a man of authority. But he didn't have the answer to that question. Otherwise, why would he ask Jesus Christ? Uh, He didn't seem to have the peace and assurance that his religion should have given him. Uh, And it's not, of course, religion that saves, but... Uh, a genuine faith uh, that brings somebody to Christ. Uh, perhaps he just was unsure and needed that peace and assurance. But a one two-letter word, I think it's significant in this verse 17, is what must I do? Uh, implies that he misunderstood what Christ had said about the gospel. Or misled by the prominent thinking of his day, of the religious leaders, of which he was one, that there's some kind of achievement, some type of works, some great exploit that he was hoping Jesus would tell him what he would have to do. He was, as we'll see, a man who was very religious, very moral, and yet that did not satisfy. And uh, so he wanted to know what else would he have to do to make sure that he had eternal life. Another key word in verse 17 is this word inherit, which goes along with this idea of Jew. Somehow he thought there must be some kind of merit to salvation, uh, that he had to, again, work his way. And and that's part of a lot of false religion today. Uh, A lot of people throughout our country and around the world are trying to work their way. You see, in some countries, people will persecute themselves. They'll, they'll uh, torture themselves. They'll even ask, I've seen more than one occasion, the Philippines or countries like that where they'll even hang somebody on the cross thinking if they're tortured or suffer that somehow they can merit eternal life. Clearly, the rich young ruler, as so many people, was on the wrong road. And as so many people are on the broad road, with a wide gate. And many are going to that wide gate instead of the narrow gate, as Scripture said and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, few there be that find it. Now many of the Jews in that region would say, keep the law. Follow the law. Observe the law. That is your hope. But we know that's what Jesus taught. and That's not the gospel of Scripture. And, of course, he was asking about eternal life. We find the term or of some form, eternal or everlasting life, 50 times in Scripture, in the New Testament particularly, and only two, though, in the book of Mark. This is one of those occasions. Probably the most familiar verse is the great gospel verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Well, then Christ asked him a question. He 
replies, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. That's a great question. Did the rich young ruler understand his identity? Or was he just trying to help him think he was a good guy? We don't know exactly what he thought. But Christ's response by saying there's no one good but God had to be stunning to what we might call this rich young ruler a legalist. As we'll see in the next few verses, and we read, he said he had kept the law. He was a legalist. And Jesus says there's no one good except for God. And if he knew his scripture, he would have remembered perhaps in Psalm 14 on two occasions in verse 1, and I think it's verse 4, where we have the reference that we find also in Romans chapter 3. There is no one who does good. In Romans, there's no one without sin. We're all lost sinners. Now, perhaps the rich young ruler was being tested by the Lord, by Jesus Christ, to see if he really believed in his identity. As many were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, as Christ identified himself as co-equal with God the Father, which, of course, the Jewish leaders thought was blasphemy. But he was indeed the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, as foretold in the Old Testament, if they understood their Old Testament Scripture, they should have recognized this indeed is the Messiah. Daniel even gave the time frame when the Messiah would come to earth in Daniel chapter 9. But either they were ignorant of Old Testament Scripture or just totally blinded, as uh, happens with people who are blinded in their hardened hearts uh, and allowed by God to be blinded there. So the world can investigate and can do so sincerely. But secondly, I'd like us to notice in verses 19 and 20, the world's idea about conversion then is often very superficial. So the world's investigation about conversion can be, or at least sound sincere. But now as we look at the next couple of verses, the world's idea about conversion is superficial. Now, Jesus' answer in verse 19 is, uh, you know the commandments. And he goes on to list six of the Ten Commandments, six of the last Ten Commandments. And we might ask, why did he point him to the Ten Commandments? You know, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, and the Philippian jailer, as the jailer was about to kill himself because prisoners were going to escape, the Philippian jailer said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That wasn't the tact that Jesus used in response to this question. He asked him about the law. So why did he do that? I think Jesus, as he knows every heart, And unfortunately, as we're preparing the gospel or presenting the gospel, we don't know the heart. We don't always know the background unless we know that individual real well. We don't know their stumbling blocks, but Christ always knew the heart of the individual. With x-ray vision, knew what they were thinking and their background. And knew this would be this man's hang-up, thinking that he was a good man. He called Jesus a good teacher. 
Maybe he wanted the same praise heaped on him. You're a good man. You're a, a good ruler. Uh, you're a good ruler of the synagogue. Uh, I believe Christ was trying to show this man's inadequacy to point out the expectation of God is perfection, which, as we know, no one can keep. As James reminds us in James chapter 2, 10, that if a person could keep the whole law, but violated in one point. If there's anyone out there that's just violated in one point, he's guilty of what? Of all. Guilty of all. Now, one comment about this listing here. I said there's six of the last uh, ten commandments. We don't see the phrase, do not defraud. Some have believed perhaps that was a substitute for covetousness. Or maybe there's only five that are listed here that this is synonymous with stealing, though stealing is already listed in the context. Uh, Not 100% sure about that. So then in verse 20, the ruler turns to Jesus and now he leaves the word good out. Do you notice that? Just calls him teacher. I wonder why. It just says teacher here. It says, I kept all these things from my youth up. Whoa, even from your youth? Well, I don't think I'd want to go that far back and say from my youth. You know, maybe at a certain stage I'd feel like uh, I could be a little proud and egotistical, though I should not be and I'm not because I know of my sinful failures as an adult also. But he uh, said he kept all the law. To that I say, wow, you did? You really were able to do that? I like to meet that kind of guy. And he probably was very zealous, a zealous legalist, a zealous Judaizer. He was probably sincere in his own mind in thinking the way he was taught. Uh, in the thinking of that day of Judaism, he probably thought he was a moral man and not a terrible sinner. And because of that, because he kept the law and the letter of the law, perhaps, in a legalistic way, he perhaps thought he had been blameless. It is interesting that many times Christ had tension with what groups, what group particular of people in the New Testament days who were the legalists of those days. Okay, the Pharisees. I mean, there was back and forth. Christ didn't condemn this rich young ruler like he did the Pharisees. And I believe, again, because he knew his heart, this man was just simply not a hypocrite and not trying to make up anything he had tried his best this was his religion and he thought this was the way to get to eternal life though he was asking because there was still something empty in his heart and soul matthew chapter 19 verse 20 adds this that he asked and this is not in the mark account he said what am i still lacking so another thought here that's not in mark's account what what am i still lacking then So this man revealed that he had what is a common view in that day, as well as our day, yet superficial view of sin that often is consistent in external acts of the outward, of the idea of the legalist of that day. And since he had not violated these regulations, he thought he was in the clear. On the surface, he looked good. But the purpose of the law is to condemn. The purpose of the law is to crush. 
under the weight of the impossibility to show that we are sinners and that we are deeply in need of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the third point, and we'll spend a little more time on this because in verses 21 through 27, we find Christ's instructions about conversion involves complete surrender. Christ's response, His instructions about conversion involves complete surrender. That there is to be surrender to a willingness to follow the Lord. And verse 21 is really an amazing verse. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Some very important phrases in this verse. And the first is the introduction to what Jesus told him. He had deep love for him, deep compassion. This is not an emotional affection, but a deep compassion for the lost. And I ask the question, how much of a deep compassion is there in our hearts for the lost around us? For our neighbors, for our family that are lost. And Christ responded by pointing out really the critical issue at hand. He says here in this verse, one thing you lack. There's one thing. You may be rich. You may be a follower of the law, but you're still lacking one thing. And again, Christ with x-ray vision knows his heart. And he said very clearly, go, sell all you possess and give to the poor. Three verbs of command are given in that verse. Go, sell, and give. Go, sell, and give. Maybe some of you right now like to sell some of your stuff and uh, wish you could sell it or maybe you wish you had sold it in a garage sale a week ago before the storms came. But the point is that Jesus knew this man's heart. Knew that he had a deep love for himself, for his possessions. And that his wealth was number one. His wealth was his idol. His wealth was his God. Had usurped the place of God in his life. And Jesus knew that the rich man would not have a true commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus does not always make this demand. We don't find this demand in every passage of Scripture where He's presenting the gospel one-on-one or to a crowd. Go, sell, and give. But this was a rich man, and he knew his heart. And uh, as we already explained, uh, Paul didn't say that to the jailer either. And the last part of the verse states this. If you do that, you will have treasure in heaven. Now, the act of selling his possessions and giving to the poor was not the way of salvation. It was not a charity-based salvation, a works-based salvation. But he was pointing out a central truth that he also expressed in the Sermon on the Mount, that if we treasure treasures in heaven, uh, we're laying up treasures for ourselves. But if we're treasuring things on earth, it's not going to last. It's not going to be of any value to us. Christ was very indicting in that passage of Scripture. But the last phrase is perhaps the key phrase here in verse 21, and come, follow me. We've seen that in other texts, particularly texts of discipleship, texts of the call of His disciples. And this word follow is what we would call in the present tense, which can be translated, be continually following me, day by day. We find that in other passages. 
daily we are to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And to follow Christ is to accept Him as our Savior and Lord. So I believe the key truth that we're finding here in this text is that the Lord does not, uh, excuse me, the Lord does expect the seeker or the one who wants to follow Him to give up that which he usurped, usurped or taken the place of God in their lives. Now, there certainly are other idols in this world, other idols in our life than materialism, but it certainly is a problem in America, in much of the Western world. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But notice verse 22. What was the rich man's response? But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving. For he was one, and here we find the key, who owned much property. He failed the test. Unfortunately, he was not willing when he learned that eternal life demands a total commitment to Jesus Christ. A commitment he was not willing to make. He heard the cost. And he turned. And he walked away. Turned his back on the Messiah. On the only hope for his salvation. And turned away. One commentator, and I didn't realize this till I read this, said this is the only instance in the Gospels when Jesus' direct invitation to follow him was rejected. Some of today's soul winners would say, well, Jesus was a failure. Was he a failure? No. No, we are told, as we're presenting the precious Gospel, see, to be faithful. It is God who brings the increase. In verse 22 states clearly why we already alluded to why he went away why he was saddened because he owned much property had great possessions and so then in the next few verses verses 23 through 27 jesus uses this incident as a teaching opportunity to his disciples introducing and emphasizing the great difficulty that wealthy have wealthy people have in entering the kingdom of god verse 23 and jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And note the reaction of the disciples. They were astonished. They thought, as was the common Jewish thinking in that day, that riches were a mark of divine favor on an individual, a reward for their spiritual piety. Again, as we mentioned earlier, if anybody was going to heaven, they thought, people who had money. And Jesus is stating that these riches can be more of a handicap than an advantage. Now, the Bible never says having things is sinful. But as you know, it is the love of what? Money. Mammon, that is the root of all evil. Where does that put us as Americans? As we are considered just one small segment of the world's population. And I've traveled to a few countries, not many countries, but I've seen the stark contrast uh, and seen really abject poverty in Tanzania or in uh, a couple other countries. Uh, I've been to Europe where it seems like they have pretty much similar standards, lifestyle as we do. Uh, but on a Holy Land trip, visited Jordan and Egypt many years ago. Listen to some statistics. They're kind of old statistics, but they're probably still fairly valid. 
And this is no attempt to diminish the pain and misery of poverty in America. But according to the 2000 census, those who are considered poor then, 46% of them owned their own home. 76% of them had an air conditioner. 30 years before that, only 30% of all Americans had air conditioners. I remember the day when we traveled all out west in the desert without an air conditioner in our car when I was a kid. Uh, and we survived that. And I thought, remember the day when we had a, a window air conditioner and thought, we're in the lap of luxury. And then later on, you have uh, the whole house can be air conditioned. Uh, nearly three quarters of people in poverty in America own a car. 30% of those in poverty have two cars. 97% have a color television. 78% have a DVD player or VCR back then, VCRs. 62% had cable television or satellite TV. Do you think you'd find that among impoverished and third world countries? I've been in Tanzania where they're hoping just for some food for the day to eke out a day's living. In 1973, the average house size in America that was being built at that time was 1,660 square feet. In 2013, it was 2,521 feet, over 2,500 feet, square feet, in the average new house that was built. There actually was a little bit of a decline during the recession, but it has started to bump back up the last two or three years. So how would the Bible describe even many, not necessarily all, but many of the people even in so-called poverty in America. And again, this is I understand there's some people that are really struggling and, uh, and we need to have a charitable heart and reach out, helping hand when we can. Perhaps we have more of a blind side on this same issue as the rich young ruler had. Then Christ spoke a very familiar proverb denoting something that was impossible here in verse 25 by saying it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Speaking about one of the largest beasts trying to go through one of the smallest holes. The eye of a needle. I've tried to thread a needle. I can't even get a thread through the eye of a needle. You know, I don't know how many times it takes me to do that. You know, showing the impossibility. The point of the proverb is that it's impossible to accomplish this without supernatural intervention. And really, that's what salvation is all about. It's supernatural. Ephesians 2, where you have dead people. You have been made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And the disciples are so astonished, they say in verse 26, well, then who can be saved? Let's just quit, because nobody's going to get saved if that's the issue. Salvation is not a matter of doing good. It is God in His miraculous power and His grace and the miracle of Calvary and the resurrection and what Christ could accomplish for us in salvation, bringing us to Christ. And as verse 27 is pointing out, salvation is fully impossible without God. With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So next time you get a defeated attitude about a relative, huh, I, they'll never get saved. Or a neighbor, have you heard his tongue? 
Have you heard the way he puts us down? He'll never get saved. Never say never. Be a believer. Pray. Give the gospel. It is the supernatural work, whether it's somebody who's a child, raised in a Christian home, who comes to Christ, or a thief on the cross, or a prostitute, or whomever it might be, God is able to save. He is a God of the powerful, a God, almighty God who saves. The ultimate test, though, in this passage is whether the rich young ruler was willing to obey Jesus Christ. Jesus is not teaching salvation through good works. He's not teaching that you're saved if you give money to the poor, sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus was saying, who's going to be king of your life? Who's going to be your Lord? Who's going to run your life? Jesus was saying, unless I can be the highest authority in your life, there's no salvation for you. So, again, does that mean we have to sell all? Maybe if you had a flood, you'd like to get rid of all. Uh, Don't take a vow of poverty right now. You know, I wish maybe you wish you didn't have things. Sometimes I look at our basement and the clutter and the boxes, and I tell my wife, "We just need to get rid of this stuff. I don't want to move with this stuff. Let's get rid of it now." I mean, some things we haven't even opened in years, and uh, some Christmas decorations we never put up. Contrast this man's response to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was willing to give half his possessions to the Lord. And he was willing to pay four times the amount that he defrauded people as a ruthless, thieving tax collector. And what did Jesus say? Salvation has come to your house this day. What's the difference? Zacchaeus said, I'll give half. He's going to keep half. Again, Christ knew his heart. Christ knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows those who truly believe, those who really want to follow. Salvation clearly is by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. We're not teaching, again, a works-based salvation, but what is challenging and sometimes can be reassuring and helpful if perhaps somebody seemingly has lost their faith or we think that, you know in Baptist we don't believe you can lose your salvation and in, in our theology and our thinking but sometimes people say well I know they were saved but do we know a person's heart a person can give lip service they can do the talk and the walk even for a long time but we don't know what's going on in the heart and Ultimately, as Paul says, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or James says, faith without works is dead. There will be the ability to see the authenticity over the long haul in somebody's life. I believe also we need to look and search in our hearts and lives. And when I read a text like this, I think, I I have too many things. I have too many things that divert my attention from God. What are our American idols? Certainly materialism, possessions, but perhaps things that take our time away from the Lord. Uh, There are lots of things we can do in life that aren't bad, aren't unhealthy, but 
Perhaps they're pursuits that drive us away from serving the Lord, serving the Lord in the local church, witnessing. We can get involved in this campaign and this effort. Personally, I know a little bit about that in my own life. And when I was actually still in seminary and living in Allen Park, uh, I decided, you know, this would be a time to help a man in his campaign for political office. And I gave a lot of my time. And I saw other Christians devoting a lot of time. And he got elected. But things really didn't change that much. You know, I, I got this mindset that, you know, politics will change America. It's only God. It's only Christ. And was it just wasted time when I could have would have read my Bible, could have been witnessing? So even those kind of pursuits, sometimes we're in love with ourselves. Instead of saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God, we're saying, seek, I'm seeking my kingdom and my self-righteousness. And I hope all these things will be added unto me. Maybe we've made ourselves our own idol, our own God. It may not be money or materialism, but it may be our passions and pursuits. There's nothing wrong with loving sports or having hobbies. But do they take us away from the Lord, from the Lord's service? Are we truly passionate about Jesus Christ? Jesus is calling on this rich young ruler, I want you to follow me. Get rid of the idol in your life. God will speak to our hearts and apply applicational truths that will help us and encourage us in our faith, in our walk with the Lord. So we bow in prayer. Lord, we ask that you will take this text, these truths, cement them into our hearts, Help us to apply them. Help us to be willing to submit to your authority and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit if there's sin, unconfessed sin, idols of our life that we need to confess and root out, or if there's been a false conversion of anyone in this room. We pray that they might understand the call of the gospel is to follow you to walk in obedience. We may not have understood fully what that meant as a child, but that there would be a heart and a desire, whether we were saved as a child or an adult, but that there would be a heartbeat, a desire to follow Jesus Christ. We ask for your blessing on this congregation, on this community, that uh, you want people to grow in their faith and this community to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Bless us as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.